0: Hi there, and welcome to the end of the narrative part of Season 2 of the Krakenbusters, where we've been exploring the Great Sea Monster Crisis of 1987. This is Episode 214, The Sweet Hereafter. I'm Keith Pilly. Last week, we looked at the simultaneous combined crises of the American-Soviet standoff in the North Atlantic and the concurrent sea monster attack on the American fleet. We were following Juliana Burke's desperate attempts to convince Robert Kennedy not to escalate the nuclear situation after a Soviet tactical nuclear weapon sank the USS Nimitz. And then, as the world hung by the slimmest of threads... Word came through that the French Navy had deployed a series of anti-sea monster weapons built around large hydrogen bombs, and after giving the American and Soviet fleets a chance to get clear, they detonated them, cauterizing the sea monster infestation away, and also causing astonishing environmental damage to Iceland and Western Europe. This week, The World Afterwards. With the mass detonation of the French warheads in the North Atlantic on May 14th, the sea creature crisis of 1987 was effectively over. The political crisis wasn't, of course, but it did move immediately into a markedly new phase. Shocked to their cores... Robert Kennedy and Mikhail Gorbachev agreed by hotline to de-escalate the naval situation, each of them pulling the warships of their respective fleets back several hundred miles. There was brief talk of sending a joint naval mission to Iceland to survey the humanitarian situation after the detonation of so many massive warheads so close. But ironically, what had been the Sea Monster Exclusion Zone really was too radioactive to safely sail through now. Taking my historian hat off and putting on my human being hat, I want to point out that this is really the part we all can remember. Most of this crisis happened essentially in the shadows. For most of the country, this crisis occurred as a bunch of confusing news reports about trouble in the North Atlantic, and then, seemingly out of nowhere, a brink of war crisis between the U.S. and U.S.S.R., and then, again, seemingly out of nowhere, a round of massive nuclear devastation by the French. I was 12 when all this happened, and just beginning to be aware of the wider world, and I remember going from disinterested to terrified and baffled. I know I'm not alone. I think it scarred an entire generation. And the wild thing to me is that the whole thing was precipitated by sea monsters And we didn't even know that sea monsters were even a part of it until the very, very end. Untangling the political and environmental fallout of this crisis in detail would be a big enough topic to justify its own podcast. We've already gone pretty long on this, and anyway, a lot of us lived through it all. So I guess I want to keep things tight and just wrap us up by looking at some of the high-level outcomes. On the bright side... The Sea Monster Crisis of 1987 drastically changed the dynamics of the Cold War, partly because the leaders of both adversaries were shaken by how close they had come to the brink and wanted to work to ratchet down tensions, and partly because the former adversaries were somewhat united in being appalled by the French and their callous disregard for human safety and the environment. Four months after the crisis, Robert Kennedy and Mikhail Gorbachev held a summit meeting in Madrid. Where they agreed to reduce their stockpiles of nuclear weapons by a third, with an eye to greater reductions in subsequent rounds of negotiations. We unquestionably live in a safer world because of this, regardless of what happened between Pakistan and India. The current state of mild detente between the United States and Soviet Union no doubt stems from this moment. Unfortunately for Robert Kennedy, This diplomatic turnaround wasn't enough to outweigh the general sense of outrage around the country that he hadn't played straight with the American people during the crisis, and that the whole thing had been resolved only by the French. And, to be clear, if the French were international pariahs after this, there was a very strong sense on the street, especially among the American far right, that they had done what had to be done and should be respected, not shunned. Kennedy lost the 1988 presidential election to Ronald Reagan in a landslide, despite widespread belief on the left that Reagan was suffering badly from advanced dementia and was just a charismatic puppet for his wealthy right-wing backers. Kennedy, of course, tried to stick around politics for a while, and made a half-hearted run at a comeback in 1992, but the Democratic Party considered him a spent political force, And it really seemed like he didn't even really want to be there. He dropped out of the race after the South Carolina primary and retreated to the Kennedy family estate, living out his last 12 years writing incomprehensible books about parenting. Spinning back to the immediate effects of the French actions, though, the blasts represented nothing short of a disaster for the nation of Iceland. A significant portion of their population suffered directly from the radiation-related injuries at the time of the blast, burns and blindness mostly, and then, following that, their southern coast, which is where most of their population lives, after all, was blanketed in airborne fallout while the seas to the south of them were similarly awash in radioactive debris. International aid work, led by the U.S., but with significant contributions from other ADP nations and frankly a surprising level of assistance from the Soviet Union, did some mitigation, but Iceland still hasn't really recovered. Fallout effects were present throughout basically all of Europe west of the Rhine for years, especially along the Atlantic coast. Despite their long period of international isolation, the French position has never really changed. We did what had to be done, and also probably stopped you from destroying each other in the world. You should thank us. Except for some fringe parties here and there around the world, the world hasn't really been falling over itself to thank the French. Although you can't argue with the results, there has not been a confirmed sighting of a sea monster since 1987 it turns out that going in with overwhelming, ruinously destructive force when the infestation is still in an early concentrated stage is maybe enough to do the job. And it's worth noting that although both the U.S. and USSR condemned the French actions, both countries are credibly reported to now possess arsenals of Sonobui H-bomb warhead combinations to deploy just in case there's a resurgence of sea monsters somewhere. Now, like I said, I'm not really here to go through the history of the past 35 years. We've all lived it, or at least all of us olds have. At this point, it's not even really history yet. It's just, it's our lives. But, since I leaned so heavily on the perspectives of a couple of participants of the events in May of 1987, I'd like to let them close things out for us, in both cases, when I talk to them. I asked them how they felt about their role in the crisis and what their lives had been like afterwards. Here's what Julianna Burke had to say. Quote, I mean, obviously it was a very transformative thing for me. After the shaking stopped, it really made me rethink a lot of my basic assumptions about how government works and what motivates leaders. I think about how differently it all could have been if Kennedy had just been up front with the public about what was going on from the get-go. I know that seemed too risky in the moment, but look what happened instead. I was proud to be able to try to help put the world back on its tracks afterwards, especially at the Madrid summit. I feel like that was maybe my finest hour in government, but really the thing I'm prouder of has been my teaching afterwards. Look, you and I both know that the way things work, some of my students are going to have hands on the actual levers of power. It's Harvard. That's just the way things are, however much we want to talk about a meritocracy. I hope that I've been able to use what I've been through to make those hands a little more pragmatic and better informed. End quote. And then Javier Delgado, quote, I'd be lying if I said it had been easy since then, you know? We were shielded from the worst of the Russian tactical nuke by the bulk of the Flag Island, but the docs still figure that I got a couple years worth of quote-unquote safe radiation dosage right there. I got DQ'd from field service pretty quick. The D69 docs were worried about trauma and PTSD and all that shit, plus just waiting for some kind of cancer shoe to drop. I've been pretty lucky there, but I'm pretty close to alone in that. Costy died in 94. He had it real bad in his liver. Muffy went down in 96. And of course, Hickok and Ski Pass were in the air when the bomb that got the Nimitz went off, and they died pretty much instantly. It's a rough thing, losing that many of your friends and then losing your job, too. Maybe the shrinks were right about the trauma shit, who knows. But I shouldn't complain. They gave me a decent pension, enough to buy a place here on the water. I like being in Oakland. It's a pretty town. They rebuilt it real nice, and I don't know, I like the full circle thing of me, a guy who lived through one nuke blast in a sea monster crisis, living in the spot where the other nuke blast happened in a sea monster crisis, and it does feel good knowing that when the shit hit the fan, I was out there helping, doing my part. That's a comfort. It ain't a bad life, I guess. End quote. And let's leave it there, for the main story at least, and for this week. But I will be back one more time next week to uh, talk about some apocrypha and behind-the-scenes stuff and future stuff. Thanks, and see you then. Be well. Realize just mm. who they was attacking mm. Wake up, you sons of bitches